Hi, I'm Sage. I'm here with Adam. And this week, another question. What game is best suited for performance play in front of an audience? Uh, and this one came from Adrian, one of our listeners. Right. Listeners slash readers slash whatever. I think I was using reader before. Close enough. Listener is good. This premise is pretty crazy. So I think Adrian's initial concept was from uh, Tabletop. Will Wheaton's awesomeness, because Will's talked about several times, you know, it's really hard to get a good RPG mm -hmm. for his format, which is basically relatively short one-shot, because uh, they're not going to repeat the RPG for Tabletop, although he's got his other show that he's working on, um, and editable down to an hour or less, because he likes to keep Tabletop relatively short. And that's a really weird format. You um, know, that's something that I came up with as well. Like, the part of... What was on my mind with answering this is figuring out what RPG play really looks like. Mm -hmm. And a lot of RPG play is somewhere between writing the script for a TV show, acting out that TV show, making a battle plan, and going into combat. Like, <laughs> depending on your style of play, it may be sure. one or more of those. It may be more like people sitting around figuring out how can we, you know, steal this gem without somebody noticing. Or it could be everybody talking, sitting around talking about, oh, you know, it'd be really cool as if. This thing happened. And that discussion is hardly ever interesting. Exactly. That's my frustration with, like... So the other two big formats are the PAX format, live play of D&D that's all theatrical, and you're really there because they're famous people and you like them. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last format is, like, role play, which is, here are four-hour YouTube videos, or, or watch the Twitch stream... And the fun thing is, here are famous people, I like listening to them, and also uh, there's a gigantic Twitch chat, and people are doing things behind the scenes, between episodes, and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, the closest analog is really a game show. Ah, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's what I think these really want to be. Um, RPGs are not really built for audience play in general, and so you, get, end up, you end up with this kind of game show feel... Um, and they're not really built for a game show. So the, the principles of a game show are you want the audience to immediately understand what everybody's trying to do, how you can win, and to try and play along mm -hmm. on the side, right? And and D&D really doesn't do that. D&D no. uh, says uh, everybody has to know their own character, and unless they've passed out all of the character stuff and a whole bunch of background, you have no idea. And this is part of why this question is so hard to answer, because I think there's a fundamental tension there, because part of what's fun in D&D, right. a lot of other role-playing games, is having this character that you have a deep investment and a deep ownership of, right. and that you can't just sit down and immediately tell somebody and they understand it. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't know how to play D&D, it breaks even further, right? Why are they rolling those dice? You know, what? why is he making this move instead of that move? All this kind of stuff. And even within, uh, you use the example of Tabletop, within the two RPG episodes that you've, they've done, mm -hmm. there's a huge divergence, in my opinion, in quality <laughs> of those episodes. Yes. Yes. So talk about the two episodes uh, of Tabletop. So the two episode. games that they covered were uh, Fiasco and Dragon Age, uh, the, the Tabletop game based on the video game. Right. Um, and they're... Different fits for the format, I think, is the, the kind of the fundamental issue. Yeah. Um, not, it's not that one game is massively better than the other, though I happen to prefer one. It's uh, definitely, it shows the strengths of a, an audience format. Yeah. And Fiasco fits very much into that kind of, we're, we're writing a script and acting out that script, sometimes at the same time, very improvisationally, but we're, we're not doing the, okay, let's sit around and plan our you know, actions in combat and then see how those work out. 
And part of that is even res uh, resolution time. The amount of time that you spend in the overhead of figuring out the result of something in a lot of RPGs makes for a lot of unwatchable time, but it's fine in play because you're very invested. Like, it's yeah. it's an interesting outcome uh, machine that you're involved with. Yeah, one of the big things about Dragon Age is that where they were interacting with the mechanics, uh, it takes your it takes a lot of time to figure out what an optimal move is or what a set of choices for the optimal move is, and that's a lot of discussion and relatively boring, shall I say, type of talk. And then well, when you finally watching, find those, say. well, well, but Will can edit those. Like the the tabletop team did a really good job of trying to pare it down to only the interesting stuff. Yeah, but it was funny how much of that interesting stuff was not here, let's dig into the Dragon Age mechanics. That interesting stuff was, here's some stuff that we happen to be doing around the Dragon Age mechanics. So, so you spend all of this time trying to figure out, well, what are the things I could potentially do? And then arguing about which one's the best, or just picking at random, which is not so great. But the Fiasco game, it's really easy to tell what you could do, yep. um, even though there is such a wide swath of possible things. Uh, but since you've got that genre baked in, you can kind of start with something really nice. And so moving right to action is really easy in Fiasco because there's nothing in your way. Yep. And this, in my opinion, is one of the fundamental like problems with showing people more of what role-playing is. Right. The fact that these videos often turn out so uh, okay is uh, we're not showing off the best. And the thing is they're still good. Like, it's not like the... People watch roleplay. People watch the PAX games. People, yeah. Exactly. And that, that was an experience that I just had at PAX East. I was uh, manning the Burning Wheel and Dungeon World booth, and uh, somebody walked up looking for Adam Coble and said, oh, I love watching his roleplay stuff. That's, he is the best GM I've ever seen, and it completely blew my mind. And I was thinking, man, I've played with Adam, and he is an even better GM than he looks <laughs> on that show. Like, if, if you could see him run a, a game that, you know, didn't have the constraints of trying to live stream it and all this stuff, it, it would blow your mind. Like, and the roleplay games, like, one of the things about watching an RPG is that participating is so huge. And I love participating in them and making the choices and talking about the stuff. But watching them, you are so much more aware of, well, there's 10 seconds of downtime and yep. there's 30 seconds of downtime. And somebody's looking up a rule here and he wasn't quite sure here, but he improv it pretty well. And okay, this is a four hour episode that really was about an hour of actual action. Um, and it feels, it hurts a little bit if you want, because if when you're playing, you ignore all that stuff. Yeah. When you're playing, that 10 seconds of downtime is you thinking, and so it doesn't doesn't break out as much. But it would be amazing hard. if better play could make it into, through this process. Not that the people who are doing it right now are bad. Like the, right. uh, They play great games. They play great games. Uh, but if more of... Adam is the best example that I know of because I've played games with him that weren't live streamed. I'm just like, oh my gosh, if, if you gave him, if you knew what it was to actually play with him as opposed to watch him play, and maybe that's it. Maybe when I play with him, I'm not, you're not paying attention as much. Right. But still, if you knew what it was to play with Adam, yeah. It's hard. It's hard. And, and you can't do the editing. Well, so, so the, the game show thing. You want, you want the audience to pick up immediately. You want the show to have an arc and a particular amount of time, and that's RPGs don't do that very well at all. Uh, and, and you want 
everybody's decisions to make sense to everybody outside and all of this kind of narrative tension and everything. And games just have a hard time with this. Well, and this is, uh, like you said, every example I can think of where this has been successful, you're partially watching for the people playing, right. not for the game itself. Right. Uh, and those people, for, for the people playing for reasons other than them being particularly good at playing. Right. Uh, either because they uh, work in porn, or they are Twitch streamers, or they are uh, famous nerds, like all those things are what gets you in the door, and then you see them doing this thing, and usually it's because they, they help fill that time. Right. Well, my well, this, so the Fiasco game. So Fiasco is my number three pick. Okay. Um, be, because of the Will Wheaton Fiasco game. And it shows the amazing awesomeness that Fiasco can be. So Will Wheaton picked people on that and that are actors and people that can do improv casually. And so the Fiasco game ended up being awesome because they were just improving and off the cuff and, and hilariously funny. And so it just worked. And Fiasco is built to provide this while well, it's going to take a very specific amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then the post-editing is really easy to be like, well, if it took a little bit of time to, to figure out what to do, well, we'll just cut that. And this scene wasn't as funny. Well, we'll just cut that scene. And you can do all of this. Okay, we generated four hours of content. What was the best hour Show it. But I bet you the live stream wouldn't have been as awesome. The live stream would have not been as awesome, but it plays into... Fiasco is a game that's set up a lot like movies, and it's kind of... In some ways, it's kind of like they asked everybody to improvise an entire movie and then send it through the editing process that you'd normally do with that much footage. Right. And so Jason Morningstar designed this thing in 2009, and the genius of the system is that it, it lets you build a movie with very simple kind of starting seeds... You know, everybody has something they need and they have a little bit of character background and you know where this movie is going and it's going no place good and you can just kind of watch the train wreck as it as it finishes. And the end, like, none of the normal game stuff happens in Fiasco. Nobody is growing as a character. Nobody's getting more powerful. You're probably going to die. At the end of the game, there's an epilogue kind of mechanic that... You know, it asks you to get particular dice if you want to push a particular ending, but really, you're not playing for that. You're playing for this crazy train wreck. And I think that's something that we're going to see repeated in a lot of our choices here are games that uh, that probably broad swaths of gamers don't consider RPGs. Fiasco is one that a lot of people will point out, like, that's not an RPG. That doesn't have any of the RPG things. Uh, and... I think that's because a lot of those RPG things, like the, the things that uh, often get referred to as RPG things, don't translate to that genre. But what is an RPG really? Exactly. <laughs> I've been trying to dance around the fact that I'm never going to answer this question, uh, which leads me, uh, let's interleave our Yeah, I like week. it. Um, I actually don't have a third pick, so this will end up being even more lopsided. Uh, my number two pick is, are the Parsley games. Um, so the Parsley games, most famously Action Castle, are basically uh, human-driven text adventures in the style of uh, Zork um, or any of the innumerable other games uh, that have you typing Take Lantern and all that stuff. Um, The great thing is, as a GM, uh, you basically are given all of the key elements of this text adventure. You know, if they have this in this room, they can do this. Here's how all the rooms interconnect. Uh, and it's even listed as exits are, um, and then the the things that they can pick up in that room. But the beautiful thing that makes this more interesting than somebody just going to um, 
uh, what's the name of uh, Twine and right. making this game audience participation is the audience participation and the fact that the GM can improvise so you always end up with uh, some the the basic flow of the game is that you have the players take turns giving one command each um, which it leads to the awesome moments they always have where somebody comes up with some clever possibly clever in quotation marks uh, thing to say and right. the GM has to think of you know what does uh reset game mean and of course the, the best reaction there is to just go right back to the beginning and everybody everybody in the audience just moans and wants to beat up the person who just took a turn um and part of why this works so well for performance play is that it has that element of participation uh everybody's playing but there's it, you can be in that queue of people you can play it with it's been played with hundreds of people and they take turns uh giving commands, so even if you're at the back of the line, or even if you are in the line and might not make it by the time the game is finished, you have a reason to listen along. Um, I keep on waiting, maybe Adam will do this, uh, Adam Cobble, uh, a Twitch game, where it's like Twitch, Twitch plays, plays Pokemon, but it's Twitch plays Action Castle. Totally, or even in the PAX line. It's like you can text your moves up. Uh, that's, uh, they've done it at PAX with nice. uh, a big theater, and just everybody gets in line, and go through it. Uh, and there's several other games. Um, these are all by Jared Sorensen. Uh, Action Castle, um, Spooky Mansion, Z-Ward, the zombies. Um, oh, what's the jungle one? Jungle Adventure. Uh, all taking on different genres and all of them have their, their own little quirks to them. Uh, yeah. And that's... So, it, the first few people that will go up and do it kind of set the tone for everything too because it's the GM you can be a little bit flexible but if you sense that the person is playing a legitimate text adventure you can be very very strict mm -hmm. about your parsing algorithm per se yep you know you, you say take rock and then the GM can say I don't know what that means and if if they know what you're trying to talk about and at which point audience participation kind of can increase because somebody can go well I get kind of what's going on here and you can weasel your way into a particular verb, which normal text adventures don't let you do. Mm -hmm. And it plays <laughs> into the things that work well with streaming games, mm -hmm. uh, where especially the GM is very much getting to improvise and have fun in the moment. So if the GM is somebody that you like and you want to watch, you're going to get to see a lot of them doing funny things. Yeah, it's definitely a G the GM's game. Yeah. Uh, depending on how big the audience is, I guess. Well, I think that an interesting thing, if uh, if I were Adam Cobble and writing this, I'll have to write him an email. You should just do it yourself. Uh, except I don't know these people. Oh, um, set go. up uh, a role-play game with a few people that I know who everybody wants to watch, who are funny and interesting, and then one <laughs> slot reserved for basically the audience, nice. so that every uh, you know fifth turn is you going to be the, the Twitch plays. <laughs> yeah, uh, And they you know upvoted and all that stuff. Oh, man. That would be really awesome. I, I would probably watch that because it would move pretty fast, especially as the GM, you've got all of your props kind of set up and there wouldn't be very much downtime. It would just be kind of picking an answer. Yep. Uh, I mean, I think I would watch it, especially with a good group of people. And uh, in theory, you can go through the different adventures. I think the place that it falls down, and I, I hate playing the is it an RPG thing. I typically, when I uh, I was selling this at the Burning Wheel booth, and I would say, oh, here's our RPGs and then here's Action Castle. Uh, because it, <clears throat> for whatever, you know, weird, I, I try to have the broadest definition possible and still by default, it didn't fall in there. Um, like it has some of those elements of thinking in character, uh, thinking creatively, but I'm not sure that I'd call it an RPG. <laughs>
Would you would you be okay with it being your game show though? Because this is the other thing is that uh, it's like everybody is John, right? Everybody mm-hmm. is John is a game where all of the players except for one, I think, I think are so. playing John. Uh, and they're trying to pull John in their particular direction of insanity. Uh, really, really crazy description. I've never seen it in play. I really want to see it in play. But it's weird because you are not a character. You're a slice of a character. Mm-hmm. And then there are games, you know, Microscope we've talked about before, where uh, an individual character could be played by many people and it rotates um, this game where the one character, the protagonist, is played by pretty much everybody. Yep. Um yeah, all this kind of stuff where, you know, how well is your role defined? Because mm-hmm. um, I don't want to get into that kind of definition game either. Yeah, no, I, I hate the definition game. Um, I think that part of why I'm willing to suggest it here is it's a thing that ap- appeals to people who like RPGs. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, like if you go by kind of the associative property of like, oh, if, if people who play RPGs also play this, then it has some similarity to an RPG. Um, so I think we have to talk about primetime adventures. It is not on my list, but we have to talk about Primetime Adventures. It's not on my list either, because I actually don't know that it was a very good fit. See, see, Primetime Adventures is built to emulate a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if it would work as a TV show. It still has all of the normal problems of how much downtime is there, and how do you decide what to do next, and all this kind of stuff. I feel like you could add interesting audience participation stuff to make it so that fan mail is actually audience-driven instead of intergroup-driven. Um but it feels like something that there's so much meta interesting stuff going on that you would want to not be part of the show mm-hmm. uh, that I don't know if it would be great. Like it feels like you should do primetime adventures and have all the meta stuff be kind of uh, commentary tracks and then do a radio show of for the actual you know TV. And I think that's an interesting way to take this is which uh, – maybe this is a question for another time – which mm-hmm. game produces – uh, a an artifact of play sure, sure, that would sure. be interesting to watch because there's a, a difference between a, a lot of games, even though so-called story games uh, aren't really producing story so much as like a sequence of events that fall into a. Uh, oh, you got to watch that definition game too, right? Uh, sure, but uh, I think that the the difference is um, conversely, like microscope, where you are directly manipulating. Uh, a story, so to speak, like right. a, a a full outline. A full outline. There's a beginning and an end, and you keep on messing with that beginning and end, as opposed to something that uh, might get called a story game, like um, Dogs in the Vineyard, where you're creating uh, a series of events in order that make sense one after another, that you can tell as a story, but the actual act of play is not quite like authoring something. Right. It's not like you're going to play Dogs in the Vineyard. And you'll start, and it will feel like a bunch of introductions, and you're getting to know people, and then you will end play four to six hours later and say, oh, that was a satisfying completion to the story, and that everything is tied up, and I understand, you know, this arc, and oh, yeah, that thing two hours in was foreshadowing for this thing five hours in. Foreshadowing being a key example of why uh, the act of play is rarely an act of story. Uh, it's... it's I, I like to compare it more to um, like a sporting event uh, because what you're doing is you're setting up a situation where a lot of things are going to happen. And they're going to be interesting. A lot of interesting things are going to happen that all interrelate. And afterwards, you can write a narrative. Like you, you as a person, 
probably won't actually write it down, but you will have an understanding of the narrative of the game. But I'm a football fan, and I watch football games, and <laughs> after the game, there's, there's, totally, a narrative. Yeah. there's a narrative. You can say, oh, this was the moment that it all turned, because this play really got everybody fired up. Right. But really, that play has nothing to do with what's actually happening. Uh, like, we, we can tell ourselves these narratives. But that's, um, as human beings, right, we, we're pattern-seeking. Pattern exactly, right? we're pattern-seeking. And the... All most games, because there are some games that more directly manipulate the elements of a story, but even a lot of games that get called story games or whatever, uh, Vincent Baker's work, mm-hmm. are really about creating uh, a primed series of interesting events that all flow from one another logically, right. uh, and afterwards you say, oh, the story of this was my character's eventual downfall, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So another one that's not on my list that we have to talk about, <laughs> Worldwide Wrestling. Yes. Uh, on your list? Not on your list? I only have one more game on my list, and I don't think you'll ever guess it. Okay, good. Uh, so Worldwide Wrestling, I feel, probably has the best opportunity to produce an arc, a mm-hmm. full story arc. Because one player's job is to produce a you know pseudo-story arc, and then everybody else is filling in kind of these intermediate pieces... Uh, of the background and their, you know, kind of real life stuff from the wrestlers and well, and the interesting thing there. So uh, actually, I guess we should spend a moment explaining worldwide wrestling. Go for it. Mention it briefly, but yes. uh, worldwide wrestling is Nathan Paletta. Uh, let's say 2015. I'm at it. Yeah, it's short. Uh, it came out just recently. It came out just recently. I just finally got my copy because it was on Kickstarter, and I thought, a wrestling RPG? No way. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I got a chance to play it with Nathan, and I was totally sold, and uh, finally I was at PAX, and I saw a hard copy, and I was like, well, now's the time. And it is Apocalypse World-driven, but very different. Yes. Uh, so a few key features of the game. It's about professional wrestling, which means that it's got, um, uh, oh, am I going to be able to pronounce it correctly? Kayfabe. Uh, which is the idea that uh, there's the pretend reality where everything is really happening. And as a, a wrestling fan and even a wrestler, you have to both kind of maintain this. You're, you're never going to flat out say, like, and now our next scripted thing. But you're also going to know that everybody knows it's all pretend. Uh, and this is kind of an element of what you do in the game. You play a wrestler who's a real person. You know, this is you are actually playing a wrestling organization it's who has very meta televised events and stuff. So there's these multiple layers of play. You're playing a person, playing a person. Yeah, uh, we we have to go deeper. Um, <laughs> and the one of the elements that you're talking about there is that uh, the person running the game is basically pre- playing the creative direction of this wrestling enterprise that is going to book events and they're going to have the plot lines they want to push. Um, but one of the key things they're told to do is to make any outcome look like they planned it. Right. Because it still is a role-playing game. There, uh, You can have things like injuries happen or even players can just decide, no, my wrestler is fed up with how he's been booked. He wants to be a bigger star. At this big moment where he's supposed to lose, he's going to take it real with the other guy and actually put him in a, a hold that he can't get out of and turn <laughs> the script. Uh, and the person running the game is instructed to make it, the because they're playing as this organization, this is what that organization would do, they want to make that look like it's what they planned all along. Right. So you're both pushing uh, an agenda and playing with all the flukes that come up in it. And so this is why I bring it up right next to Primetime Adventures, because it's very similar in structure, right? You've got a bunch of characters, and there's going to be a season of the show, and what's the next episode? Oh, it's going to feature these particular people, and the other people can kind of break into the episode and cause interesting things to happen, and so on and so forth. Um, and I feel like they're both built to provide the experience 
of creating or watching a TV mm-hmm. show. But I'm not sure if they would provide an interesting TV show. You know, I've been meaning to watch some of the sessions that Nathan has run because from my own experience playing it, that's a game that I would watch. Uh, and I, Cards on the Table, I don't actually like watching most uh, recorded RPG <laughs> things. I find them incredibly boring, but that's one that I'd give a try. I feel like live stream is so hard for a lot of these. Yeah. Live stream means that there's a bunch of conversation about, well, you know, I want to do this. Is that okay? How do I work that into this? And, oh, I need to roll some dice and figure this out. Oh, one of them fell off the table or whatever, right? All of this random minutiae that you don't care about. And I want to watch a live stream, not a, not a live stream. I want to watch a, a show that had been recorded and then somebody went through and snipped everything that wasn't like, this is what is happening. Well, and I want a very, I think there's degrees sure. that you could do there. I want one that cuts out all of the, oh, sorry, my keyboard got stuck. And like all of the, oh, wait, I've got to take a bathroom break and stuff like that. But I actually want to hear more of the table talk than I think you do. Well, that's what the that's what the commentary track is for, right? Mm-hmm. You you have this, and then at, at per- periodic intervals, it's like, well, click here and watch the individual commentary track about how we got to this particular state. So interesting. So speaking of stuff where it's just the good stuff mm-hmm. on the clip, uh, the con game, the pack style format, live in front of a, a full audience, I want to see dread. Oh. That's what I want. I want that so much. So Dread, Epidiah Ravichol's game... Uh, is this your number two pick? This is my number one pick. Oh, And wow. I'm skipping my number three for now, and we can talk about it. My, Wait, my I thought we already hit your pick. number three. I'm my so middle lost. Picks, okay. Uh, because it's, it's a complicated one to talk about, and I'm not entirely sure, but it okay. seems cool. So anyways, Dread uh, is a horror game where the mechanic is, uh, I'm going to make you pull from a Jenga tower. If the Jenga tower falls, you are eliminated. So... I play Dread in party scenarios where people will just come down to watch Dread. So Mm -hmm. I know it does work as an audience game. You cannot play this live streamed across, you know, multiple computers because you have to be in the same room for it. There are app versions of Jenga. You have to be (laughs) in the same room. The room has to be atmospheric. uh, And everybody has to have gotten their initial questionnaires. But that's not something that has to be public. Uh, I've played Games of Dread where I distributed all the questionnaires, had people respond to them and give them back to me, but nobody knows about the other people's stuff, so it all gets revealed through play. So the questionnaires here are basically your character sheets. Yeah, for, right. Since we haven't covered... But you have no stats, right? The no questionnaires stats. are, here's some prompts about who you are in this game. But so you play the, the high schoolers... All, that's all any character sheet is. Stats are uh, a complete artifact of a certain... Anyway. Well, well to the point that... The people playing this game don't generally have them for reference. True. Right? You fill them out just to get yourself in this frame of mind, and then you can give them back to the GM or whatever, because it's just to kind of put you in this situation. The bad things about Dread in a normal scenario are if you eliminate somebody and they're, you know, most of the time people want to stay and watch. But if you eliminate somebody, sometimes it's like, well, you know, I'd really, I'd like to continue playing. I'd like to continue pulling. Um, Although you can't forcibly eliminate somebody because the only way you can do that is if it falls Mm -hmm. and they can always refuse to pull. But, you know, these, these small things about how the genre works and, and and the way that the game flows can kind of make it unhappy unless there's an audience. But having an audience pushes people to do a little bit weirder things than they might otherwise do. And the game is built in this beautiful little three-arc structure for the particular scenarios. So as a GM, if the GM knows the structure 
uh, like the PAX D&D games. The GM in the PAX D&D games knows how it's going to play out in the grand scheme of things. And in Dread, you know really, really well how things are going to happen and where the story beats need to happen. So you can just push this thing. And if you have celebrities up there playing, you know, you know, the audience is going to yell for them to actually make the pull when they're freaked out and don't want to make the pull. The GM can say, make one pull. No, make two and cause all sorts of uproar. Yeah. Uh, you can break the, the story beats into day one of the con, day two and day three and have people come back for cliffhanger episodes. And there's very little downtime in Dread. In Dread, the downtime is, oh yeah, I'm going to put up my shotgun and shoot that alien coming out of the vent. And the GM goes... Okay, make two pulls for that. One to raise your shotgun. One, and then they make the pull or they don't. And it's all the tension of Jenga. So there's no waiting. There's no downtime. And if you have a big enough Jenga tower, everybody in the audience can see what's going on. And it's mm-hmm. loud as all get out. So uh, I think that's a very good pick. Uh, and I'm, I can't think of any live streams of it I've seen off the top of my head. It would be, be so good as a convention game. Because I want, I want to hear the audience. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's a... It's very much a participation kind of event. And every time I've run it, I've had an audience just end up showing up. Because you run it at parties where people are like, oh, I want to play a role-playing game. Play a role-playing game with us. And I'm like, okay, we can make this happen on the fly. That's interesting because my number one pick is also uh, a related game, Murderous Ghosts. Uh, So Murderous Ghosts is uh, Vincent Baker uh, riffing on horror movies and... um, the Wings of War playbook system. Um, sure, I can see that. So basically, there are there are two rule books. Uh, one for the um, the human who is lost uh, and about to be murdered by ghosts, and uh, one for the kind of GM ghost character. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, either one of those can kind of be played by group um, if you're willing to, you know, ask people for ask the audience basically. Sure. Um, so this, uh, I know that Vincent has done this. Um, run the game with, I think he usually has uh, the the ghosts basically be mm-hmm. a group thing. So everybody's suggesting scary things. Yeah. Um, if I remember correctly, maybe it was the human. The ghosts, the ghosts seem like they would work better as this kind of thing. The human needs to be, the human's doing this kind of blackjack-ish mechanic and pushing their luck a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like the human needs to be one solo, very lonely person against a world of darkness type yeah. of thing. So the, the mechanics of the book, basically each person opens up their book. There's all these numbered uh pages basically that tell you um, what's going on and you start at a certain one and the, and both people have opened to their starting ones which are different because they're two different books uh, and each of them tells them some things to do and tell the other and then the result of that conversation and maybe flipping some cards from a deck uh, will tell them which page to go to next and any other kind of state update stuff they need right. to do um, so this is the same basic thing that is in uh my thing in of Wings of War, um, mm. the it's not Wings of War, it's Ace of Aces. Ace of Aces, yes. Uh, old school kind of. I think it was seventies, eighties. Oh, but it reprinted recently. I've got a copy. Um, reprinted in, in an interesting form. Uh, it's okay. Yeah. The Ace of Aces system was you would look at the page and that would show you what was outside your playing window, and then you would give numbers that uh, corresponded to your move uh, that were different each page. And they would get cross-referenced on the other person's book to turn to a new page that would update everybody's state. Really, really crazy game system. 
Super cool. Though. And they did a similar set. Oh man, where are my copies of this? Um, because I forget the name of it, but there, uh, it's a fantasy fighting system. So you can be like the lizard man <coughs> fighting the skeleton. Uh, and for each thing you do, you, you, the interesting thing is you hand uh, the other person your book and then retain a reference sheet for your character. So the other person is looking at a book that shows what they see your character doing. Um, including awesome pages like the one where it's a blank page because they've lost track of you. You're behind them. Um, or, you know, they, they see you kind of crouched low or with your shield up or whatever. And based on those, you decide, uh, I'm going to swing high. And so you look up the number for that. You tell them the number. You cross-reference and then flip to new pages, crazy, which may have you system. damage. Murderous Ghost is kind of like that because you'll be on some page and you'll say, oh, mine tells you to go to this page based on this thing you just said. And... Mm-hmm. All that stuff. Um, I think the things that make it really work are that, kind of like Dread, there's a well-established genre that you can see things run through. Um, I think the thing that helps from Dread is the number of prompts that it gives you on a regular basis. Yeah, definitely. Uh, The the place that it falls down compared to Dread is that the actual resolution of flipping over cards isn't going to be nearly as fun as watching people, and there's a bit more of the referencing of, oh, let me look at this page and figure out which thing happens, you know, I need to read this little bit of text and it tells me that I need to ask you what you'd most be afraid of. But if you're doing, like, Twitch plays Murderous Ghosts, then you just, you could have a live stream of here's my page of the book mm-hmm. and just use kind of uh, HTML to, to pass yourself between pages and make it almost instantaneous. And then when you switch pages, be like, okay, commercial break, and then whatever. Exactly. I think, I think that could be really cool. I think, uh, I want to see for... A lot of these games that I'm suggesting, because they're, they're very structured interactions, <laughs> right. I want to see the Twitch Plays version of them, because right. um, that would be really cool. Maybe I'll uh, team up with the other Adam and do it since he's now a big-time Twitch streamer. Man, that would be interesting. The, uh, the one that I skipped uh, that I'm worried about, uh, so I want to know if you've played it, is Kagematsu. I have actually never played it. Um, I've had a copy, and uh, so... Kagematsu is Danielle Lewin uh, in 2010, and it's a game where there is a kind of a samurai-style small Japanese village, and all the men are off to war or to whatever, and the village is going to be attacked. And some ronin comes into town, and the village women are attempting to convince the ronin to stay there and defend the village. The twist is that Danielle has specified that the ronin is supposed to be played by a woman, uh, although the run in game is a man, and the village women are all supposed to be played by men, uh, and I feel like this might produce a really interesting uh, interaction set of interactions between players. And the big downsides to the game that I've seen people complain about are things like uh, it feels when these two people are interacting, it feels like you can't do much uh, outside of that interaction. But in a game where you're just you're watching anyways. It might not be so bad. The Yeah, the reason that I haven't played it is that that setup, I mean, I, I think that the uh, inversion of gender roles there is key to why the game works. Right. Um, I also think it's one of those games that I want to play with people that I kind of know and trust pretty well. Right. And uh, out of that group, the, the woman that I play with the most often uh, that I'd be comfortable playing this with is not interested in kind of a GM-ish role, which is kind of what... Yeah, the, the Ronin becomes. is... Because is, there's no other GM in the game. Yeah, there's no other GM, and the Ronin has a lot of say of um, things... out Not a lot of say, but they have a little more control of things outside of their character and uh, the kind of pacing and stuff of the game, which is a thing that my friend isn't 
particularly interested in. Um, and I really want to play it by the book. And uh, Absolutely. in all the other gaming groups that I have, either there's uh, the gender mix is already off so that we would have too many Ronin and not enough villagers, uh, or we uh, the people who are interested in GMing just aren't right. Uh, aren't the people who are interested in GMing aren't? I guess I was gonna uh, I was trying to say right, but what I meant is female. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. they they are not apparently fit for the role. Yeah, yeah so I, that's that's the other reason. That's why I feel like it would be a really interesting uh, game for role play or for or for kind of a pack scenario. Is this just the idea? Like the role play games, uh, other than the Monster Hearts game, I think mm-hmm. almost all of them are guys and just guys. Oh, but th- no, there's been a. Um, I guess it's just related, but there's uh, misclicks. The, uh, that's the Monster Hearts game that I'm talking about. That's yeah, not a role play specific thing. They they do other games. I, as well? I guess yes. Okay. Um, uh, that's what I was trying to get at. There, okay. it's a related group of people. There's crossover between those groups, and uh, they do a lot of other games live streamed that are great. Um, so yeah, I, w- I want to see it. I want to see it played. I would like to play it at some point, but I have the exact same problem. Uh, the the women that I end up playing games with uh, are are not interested in exploring gender roles so much, or at least they have not uh, have not proposed such an interesting thing. Which is, uh, I mean, which is fine. A, like that's people are people, and and it's such a weird game for that. I mean, it's a weird game. it's one of my favorites, uh, precisely because it feels like such a it's one person's vision very clearly coming through in this. Uh, it's kind of the the artistic um, pseudo ideal of these, you know, entire statements that are hard to under like that are hard to approach mm-hmm. um, and big and important. And it's that in a role playing game, but that also makes it. Tough to actually right. sit on the table. It's this beautiful little game, too. And so it feels oh, yeah, like something great. that you could introduce to people and have them play uh, without this massive amount of introduction about this is what was going to happen up on stage, right? Um, so that's the curious thing. Um, I One big note that I had about this entire premise, the, the playing for an audience, is that I feel like almost all the Apocalypse World games would do fine for this, yeah, they're not right. going to be absolutely stand out, and they're not going to be horrible because the games are really straightforward to watch, and stuff is going to happen, and then other stuff is going to happen, and there's going to be some kind of causality. But like you brought up earlier, it's not going to feel like one gigantic, everybody's planned out this gigantic story arc. Um, and then right on the other hand of that, yeah, Microscope's going to generate this enormous story arc, but as you're playing, uh, as you're watching, it's going to be built kind of piecemeal and you'll get flashbacks and flash forwards. And it, uh, unless you're really, really paying attention, like if you miss a five minute section of play, you're not going to understand some reference that gets made another hour later, mm-hmm. which is really sad. And I'm really glad we engaged with this question because it's one that I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to push forward. Like I, I don't, on the one hand, I love the idea that we could have more artifacts of play to show people, you know, this is this is the cool thing I do. This is why it's awesome. Right. But on the other hand, uh, if that endangers some of the things that are fun about it, I, yeah. Well, what I want, I want the representation of role-playing games in media to not be a bunch of people in a dark room dressed up as wizards and sounding nerdy. You know, the sound. Uh <laughs> You know, 
nothing smells good. You can tell the room is messy and nobody pays any attention and somebody probably yells out to mom to get chips at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't want that to be the representation of RPGs. I would rather it be the tabletop fiasco session. I would rather it be uh, a session of Kagematsu where something really interesting is going on with respect to, wait, that's really how you think women talk? Uh, I would rather it be a Blades in the Dark session where, mm -hmm. you know, here we're going to set up this heist and something really awesome is going to happen. Uh, you know, that's an interesting thing. I, uh, I have recordings, uh, audio only, of... Um, John Harper and myself and a few other people playing Burning Wheel because for a while I thought that I was going to try to do an actual play podcast that edited down uh, interesting parts, not try and tell the whole story, but pull out interesting moments and kind of dissect them and talk about what's going on here. Right. And ideally do that with other systems over time and everything. But first of all, that's a lot of horrible editing work. A lot of editing work. It also, playing for an audience changes how you play. Yeah. Um, and for us... Their part of play is uh, having a group of friends that you know well enough that there's kind of the uh, like social contract in play of we know what boundaries we can push, we know right. which areas we don't want to talk about, and if we if some of those boundaries get crossed, we're close enough friends that we can just talk about it like adults. It's right. not going to be a really weird situation that breaks down. Um, but if you're being recorded, that changes everything. Yep, and little things that for us, you know, are, are things that we've hashed over and we're okay with uh, are other people don't have that context. Right. So, yeah, that's interesting. Like, the Blades in the Dark thing, as far as recording and, and cutting to the good parts, uh, that's the best thing about that system, mm -hmm. I think. So Blades in the Dark is John Harper's thing that's not... Is, has the Kickstarter ended yet? No, it's not ended. Has it ended by next by tomorrow when, when this will go live? <laughs> no, uh, it won't have because, uh, well, hey, I'll pre-announce it. My stretch goal is about to go live. On oh, it, so. exciting. Um, so, yeah, so so go get Blades in the Dark or at least take a, take a look at it. Uh, it's built around this kind of idea of um, you were a group that's all working together to achieve particular goals. And one of the things that's really important to the game is this idea of if you want to do something really simple, well, let's just do resolution rules and make it really straightforward and there's like one rule and you're done. And if you care a little bit more about it, then we have some more interesting resolution rules. And if you care a whole bunch about it, we're going to do a full-on planning session and what's the really important detail to the plan and how exactly are you going to make the plan work. And there are all these mechanics for doing it that are not spend an hour thinking about it mechanics. They're just, well, we want to go in really secret, right? Oh yeah, well then we're going to use infiltration. And there you go, you've interacted with the mechanics. And then infiltration says, well, there's one detail that you need and that's how do you enter? And so you come up with a really cool way that you enter and there you go. And you cut right to the interesting part of the action and then you play. And I feel like that skips all of the stuff that we're used to in RPGs, which is, oh yeah, uh, how does Batman get to the scene of the crime? Well, I guess he takes a bus. Uh, and you just jump there, um, which has me really excited for it and really excited to see it in play. And the game that John played with Strauss uh, that, that is part of the Kickstarter announcement stuff, mm -hmm. that is the most interesting game outside of the fiasco session that I have seen. Interesting. So I almost played in that game. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, like scheduling, I just didn't have the time to make it. Uh, but... I'm glad that it's that good. I actually haven't watched it. Um, but that, I, it is interesting. Um, it is interesting to listen to because there's 
there's not those 10 minutes of, well, let's talk about how we're going to get there. It's just immediately to the moment of action. So the interesting thing for me is that uh, I game with John every week, and I'm so used to that. Like, I'm uh, seeing it in a game, I'm kind of like, well, yeah, that's, that's how I play. Well, that's what these books are, right? The, these books are codified GM tricks, codified GM techniques. And, and I think that's the best thing about RPGs that have come out in the last five years or so. I don't think it's only the last five years, though. Well, think about think about the stuff that came out in the 70s and 80s and even 90s. A lot of them, I guess aside from maybe Sorcerer, are, are books that do not say, this is how procedurally you should work your way through this game. I think that was definitely a trend uh, in some circles at some times, but I, I really dislike the idea of seeing this as overall an entirely chronological trend. Because you look at some of the... I mean, you look at the the white book D&D, uh, and it is actually very clearly procedural on a lot of things. And it really does lay out, like, these are the things you need to do, even though some of it is a little ridiculous. It tells you to, like, write, I think it's a dozen levels of your dungeon, just to begin with. That's, like, your starting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, before you play, um, all dozen levels. Uh, complete with, like, a player map and a GM. Anyway, uh, it, it, but it is laying out procedures that are very functional and very clear, and uh, that did get lost along the way. Yeah, maybe. It's it's curious. It's curious to see pieces of this show up uh, in very different ways in RPGs. Uh, like the entire burning wheel. If you start, ar- if you see a player argument, mm-hmm. bring it into the mechanics and and do that immediately. Uh, and it's in and it's in a lot of the commentary on how to run demo games too. Is people will not be used to this. People will be used to arguing amongst themselves about exactly how the team should proceed. Here are mechanics to do that. And that's really, really awesome because it means that suddenly there is a reason for you to say, well, I'm not going to argue with you right now because I don't want to have to deal with the ramifications of that argument. Um, And it's just like, you know, it's just like the blades in the dark. Well, if we're going to do this plan, uh, we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and then we're in. And it didn't take us 10 minutes to do all of that. We're just, Mm -hmm. we just are in. And I think that's one of the really important things about uh, about at least that game and, and and Burning Wheel and several others is that the game says explicitly don't care about this, mm-hmm. which is different from White Book. Care about all of this stuff and then do only the interesting stuff. Well, but that that's distinct from uh, giving clear procedures. Like sure, the, sure. the amount of the number of things that you give clear procedures for and care about. Uh, like the fact that a game might say plan out, uh, I mean, Torchbearer kind of does this, yeah. plan out the plan in clear detail so you know all the things that are happening and then go through and make the rolls and see how it adapts and all that. Um, that isn't necessarily a, a modern adaptation or something that has to do with the, how we um, communicate how to run the game, but it is a very cool thing to do. I, I think this uh, <laughs> this was a moment playing with John that I think somewhat played into that. Um, we were playing Apocalypse World Dark Ages, and uh, my character had taken a, a rival noble's kid's hostage. We went into a hostage exchange, and I, as the player, start thinking about, like, wait, who who watches them? Like, where do I go such they won't kill me? Like, What's the 50 contingency plans that I should have as this character? Well, and even just, like, what are the... 
as this character, what's the mechanism for like, how do I walk up to them and say, Hey, I've got your kids. Uh, you better give me money. Like right. all of these are things that my character probably actually knows. But as the player, I'm like, okay, so wait, I, I have somebody watch them here and then we have to set up somewhere else. So they don't know where I'm coming from, right. which are first of all, things that my character might not care about because there's all these different ideals of honor and all this stuff. But it also turned into eventually, luckily John said like, wait, you, you just want to exchange hostages. We don't right? care about all this stuff. And, and I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay, cool. Then I'll give you this amount. O- okay. Done. You, you work out the hostage exchange. It takes you a better part of a day. Done. Yeah. Um, and that th- applying that to the things that in your genre that should apply to. And I, I have no idea if this was before he added that to Blades in the Dark or after. I can't even remember when it was. Jeez. But uh, that GMing style is something that John does a lot. And it, it works in that game and it works for going back to our topic streaming because <laughs> it cuts out like nobody wants to hear me try and figure out how to do a medieval hostage exchange. Right. And uh, how do I do this so that it fits within the way that we are playing and it makes sense for this is the Skyrim game. It makes sense for this particular yes. universe. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting. It Like the, the repeated theme of how do you play a character that is smarter than you or is better at talking to people than you are or has more knowledge of history than you do. How do you do that? And we're really good at, well, relatively good at doing players that are characters that are stronger or faster than you are, because that's something that's you know you're not doing in game. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of groups, especially groups that grew up playing D and D, which is much better at simulating stronger and faster, uh, a lot of groups feel like, well, I'm really smart, so I'm just going to make intelligence a dumb stat, and I will be smart on the back end. And that's cool. Or I'm really good at talking to people and I can convince the GM everything. Uh, so I'm just going to make charisma a dumb stat. And that'll be really cool. Yeah, and I, I think that even going beyond things that your character is good at to things that uh, your character is feeling. Sure. And I think we've covered this a little bit before. Um, the marionette character. Yeah, the mar- like I, I want a character who maybe is more frightened than I am or a character who is more stubborn than I am. Um, and this, uh, you know, this is Pendragon and, um, Pendragon has, is really heavy handed about it though. It, Pendragon is very heavy handed about it. And I've, uh, I, there are, I feel like there's room for games to be less heavy handed, which burning wheel is to a degree. Um, there a lot of, actually, this is a place that monster arts really shines. Oh man, I don't want to talk about monster arts because I'm sure that's going to come up in a future one. But Do monster it. hearts, has uh, just the the tiniest bit of it, so I can save the real discussion for another time. <laughs> um, Monster Hearts has moves for social interaction that are triggered on very specific sorts of uh, social interaction because right. what you're playing are basically teenage monsters, like vampires and um, or maybe monster slayers and kind of the Buffy vein. Um, the thing there, there's uh, like a move for when you shut someone down, and the important thing there is that your character doesn't know how to get things done in ways uh, like there's no pushing someone up kind of move by default. You can get it later. Uh, So, you know, really building somebody up is not going to give you a mechanically guaranteed outcome. It may, it may still have effects because this is an apocalypse world game and you're always supposed to show the honest outcomes of their actions, but it's not going to give you the mechanical guarantee that when I shut someone down, I know that this thing will happen. Right. Uh, And that is playing a character who has actually different personal interactions. Like they, they understand how people interact differently and they, they're not necessarily better at it or worse at it, but they have a different set of tools. Right. 
a very specific set of tools. Very specific. I mean, they, they have the set of tools of uh, teens who aren't quite able to um, keep up with, or, or they're teens. I mean, I guess that kind of <laughs> covers all of it. Yeah, it's really, like, that's, that's the other reason for Dread being so awesome, is that this idea of the marionette character, where this character has feelings and thoughts and, and desires, Dread's Jenga mechanic makes you scared mm -hmm. of the things that your character would be scared about, like mm -hmm. viscerally. I have, I have had characters quite often decide not to make pulls, players not to make pulls, even though it would leave them in a horrible situation yep. because they were freaked about. And then I've also had players decide, you know, I'm just going to knock the tower over because one of the things you're allowed to do is to intentionally knock over the tower. And you are still removed from play uh, in a genre-appropriate way, but you are removed from play triumphantly. Mm -hmm. um, you go out, you know, shooting all the aliens, or you go out murdering somebody in... in it's the classic horror movie thing where, you know, you buy everybody else time and it, the door closes behind you as we see the monsters bearing down. We know you're going to die, but we were spared the grisly details of it because right. it's heroic. And this is, I've had this happen even before the tower gets really tall. Mm -hmm. Like we, we've played, you know, the two uh, first scenes and we're in, well, two first acts and we're in the last act and the tension is just too much for somebody and they still want to stay and see how it plays out, but they don't want to have to deal with pulling anymore. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And so pulling around to our original uh, concept of answering the question, I think dread. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with you on this one because I really want to see it. Because I think that the Parsley Games and Murderous Ghosts are both really good, but they don't show quite as much of um, a lot of the things that I enjoy in a lot of games. They're still, they still, I'll even still call them role playing games, but they're not as close to the core of some of the things that I enjoy. Right. Um, that I want somebody to record and show off. So yeah. please, we'll wait and listen to this. Oh my gosh. Well, I want—I would want them to do it at a con because I really oh, want yeah. the audience participation. I want there to be screens up on the side that show clips of people's question and answers mm -hmm. uh, every so often, like at a, a particular time when they're doing something. Then a clip shows up in the background that's like, "This is this person answering this question." Although Will could do clips of them answering it as an interview. Oh, that would, would be really be interesting. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. If fiasco, if fiasco hadn't already been done, it might be, it might be higher. But yeah, dread, dread I, for sure. I mean, I think that fia uh, the upside to dread is that um, compared to other, assuming that part of our goal here is uh, part of my goal at least in games that are good to broadcast play is I want things that I can show to other people and say this is what RPGs are like. Right. And. Uh, and fiasco is not like very many RPGs. It does, it's not like very many, and uh, it doesn't have quite the same idea of resolution that a lot of games do, whereas Dread has a bit more... Uh, I mean, sure, you're going to sit down and play D&D &D and you're going to have to learn to roll the dice and, instead of pulling things, but you have this idea that when you get to certain things where the outcome is unclear, we're going to do some task... You're going to ask somebody, yeah. how do I do this? And that somebody's going to tell you something you don't want to hear. Yeah. And it's going to result in some uncertain task that may or may not... Yeah. Cool. So yeah, for the win. We got our answer. Yeah, I think that it's, it's come back into print, or at least it's available on drive-thru at this point. I think it is. Um, the, I always feel bad talking about it, though, because I feel like just talking about it, I described so much of the game. Uh, no, the, the big part of the game, and the reason to get the book, is that there's three scenarios in it that are beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, the alien scenario, like, 
that's what you buy the book for. The, the mechanics, the mechanic itself is like a page in the beginning of the book. The rest of the book is, okay, how do you do really interesting gore mm-hmm. as a horror game? How do you do good tension? How do you do uh, psychological horror? How do you do, and how do you play all this stuff? And, and it's, it's a relatively large book for being mostly, okay, this is how you make this game really scary. Mm-hmm. And this is how you play this game so that everybody freaks out by the end. Um, that's, that's why you get the book. You don't get the book so that somebody can tell you how to pull Jenga Tower blocks. So That would be cool if it did have a huge discussion of like the mechanic. <laughs> how, how do you optimally, uh, your strategy, you start at the inside. <laughs> Cool. Well, that's another episode done, and we'll be uh, back in a couple weeks. Yes.